Richard Hollywood for Smart People for Tuesday, July 23rd, 2019. I'm Nico. I'm your host, talking movies, television, music, and so much more in a way that smart people can enjoy them. Glad to be back with you on this Tuesday morning. I'm actually doing this on Monday night. I'm not going to lie. I hate to break the illusion of the podcast medium, but sometimes I have to do these things out of order. Um, I'm just swamped this week, man. A lot going on. I'm doing five days of daily shows on Two Cents Radio. Five episodes in one week, uh, which is something that Rob and I, for some godforsaken reason, try to do every year. Um, and <laughs> Look, it's a lot of fun. I enjoy it. I know the listeners enjoy it because they often request it. Um, but it's a lot, man. It's draining. An hour a day is draining. So um, I have to do this the night before. It is thunderous outside. It is crazy the amount of thunder and lightning and pitter-patter on the window um, of some heavy torrential rain. It, like, the weather here in New England has signaled the apocalypse for some time now. Uh, and I'm, I'm not so sure that today is not the day. This might be the final podcast um, that, that I ever record. Um, but here we are. Okay, man, we have got a lot to get to, so let's just jump into it. Wow, I was going to do this podcast last Thursday, but I knew that Comic-Con was coming, and I knew how much you nerds love your Comic-Con, and I knew that Marvel had something cooking. I did not know to what extent, but I knew an announcement was coming, and I had to be here on the front lines to give you all the hot takes on Marvel Phase 4, baby! You know, look, I I talked about this, I think, last week when I talked about Spider-Man. I am am fully in my Stockholm Syndrome phase of going to see Marvel movies. I don't, like, enjoy them particularly. Like, I think they're totally fine. I don't think, like, they're changing cinema. I don't think that we should define this era of cinema by the quality of our superhero films. But they are, nonetheless, the most popular movies out there. And I feel an obligation to see them. And I just think after a certain amount of time, you grow to love these characters and you grow to love this world and you want more. And that's where I'm at with Marvel movies. So phase four, whatever, whatever you give me, I'm there. I'm there opening weekend. I will say, though, um, I am getting increasingly skeptical of Marvel Cinematic Universe press releases Like, the line seems to be blurring between legitimate story about an upcoming superhero movie and article on theonion.com about upcoming superhero movies. (laughs) Like, if you had told me the entire slate that was announced at Comic-Con for Marvel Phase 4 was totally made up, I'd believe you. Like, we're really scraping the bottom of the barrel, and I'm not saying this is a bad thing. Like, I didn't know who the Guardians of the Galaxy were. Before that movie was announced. I didn't know who Doctor Strange was. Before that movie was announced. I didn't know who Captain Marvel was. Before the movie was announced. And I have been pleasantly surprised. By some of if not all of those films. Um, But. Like. Sang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. Excuse me? Is that a Nancy Drew novel? I mean what? Is it like, come on, no, 
No. Sang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings is not the upcoming blockbuster from the most prolific studio in all of Hollywood. I'm sorry. The Disney Corporation is not paying half a billion dollars to see Sang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings brought to audiences nationwide. Come on, bro. Come on. <laughs> the Eternals? Who the hell are the Eternals? Angelina Jolie is in this shit? Like Brad Pitt's ex-wife? International sex symbol? That Angelina Jolie. Richard Madden from Game of Thrones? Brian Tyree Henry from Atlanta? Kamel Nanjiani from The Big Sick? What are they doing? Look, man, listen. We're scraping the bottom of the barrel. We admit that. We all admit we're scraping the bottom of the barrel with these adaptations. It's not necessarily a bad thing. Like, we've we've had enough Spider-Man reboots. We've had enough X-Men reboots. We've had enough Fantastic Four movies. We've had enough Batman movies. It's nice. It's a breath of fresh air. However, we're really running out of distinctive superhero shit to, like, differentiate these franchises. You know? Like, at a certain point, the the elevator pitch becomes a mini paragraph. It used to be high school boy gets bit by radioactive spider and now slings webs around New York City. It's simple. We get it. The powers are distinct. The story is distinct. Can be explained in one sentence. Billionaire playboy takes justice into his own hands by dressing as a bat and serving as a vigilante in the middle of the night. Simple pitch. We all know Batman. Billionaire inventor gets kidnapped by terrorists and creates an iron suit to break out. A little more complicated, but again, we understand. Iron Man. We know what his powers are. We know what he does. We know the general gist of his story. Now it's like, so there's this guy and he has 10 rings or no, he has just one of the rings and his girlfriend has another ring and there's this wizard in the mountain that has a third ring and he's got to get all 10 of them and he like does Kung Fu, but he's not really a samurai and (laughs) he like shoots lasers out of his hands, I think, or maybe that's the other wizard. That lives in the Bronx. I'm not quite sure. The Eternals. What do they do? Well, they're superheroes. So what does that mean? Well, they can like fly and shit. Are they strong? Well, sure, they're strong. What are their weaknesses? Well, they don't really have any. (laughs) It's funny. I think I was talking about this in the Spider-Man review. The character of Mysterio was so interesting. Spoiler alert for... Spider-Man Far From Home, but Jake Gyllenhaal plays this guy Mysterio, who at first seems like another Avenger, but on further glance, you realize that he's a villain. He is the villain of that movie. He is a former Tony Stark employee that was shamed out of his job. His technology was stolen out from under him, and he has created this character of Mysterio who's essentially an illusion, a a massive illusion, a trick that's played on the world. Um, uh, And and, uh, 
the it's like a ruse in order to get closer to Peter Parker and take his technology that Tony Stark left for him. And what I found so interesting about that character was how generic he was, how cut and paste his origin story felt. You know, he was just a hero that flies around and shoots things out of his hands and fights crime. And like, that's it. How does he do it? Well, he's magical. He's from another dimension or something. And it felt like a lazy origin story. It felt like um, a lazy character description. And it makes sense that in the logic of the movie, because obviously I didn't know who Mysterio was going into Spider-Man Far From Home. I'm not a comic book guy. But it all made sense to me by the end of the movie because the character is an invention of a special effects coordinator. He's totally fake. He's Fugazi. If you were to invent a superhero of your own, he would look exactly like that. There would be nothing distinctive about him. There would be nothing separating him from Doctor Strange. There would be nothing separating him from Iron Man. He is just another run-of-the-mill superhero. And look, I'm sure that the Marvel canon is deep enough to support these types of movies. I'm sure great comic books have been written about Sang-Chi and about the Eternals. I'm sure that there is a vast character history that these creators can draw from, and I have no doubt that these films will be just as compelling as everything else we've seen in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. But it feels a little samey-samey to me. It feels like everything's blending together, and I'm not going to know the difference between the Guardians of the Galaxy and the Eternals. You know? It's it's just so oversaturated. The market is so oversaturated with superhero content, um, which is why, like, of all of these movies, the one I'm most interested in is this new Thor movie, Thor: Love and Thunder, which sounds like a Fleetwood Mac album or something. You know, <laughs> like, there's no way that's the actual subtitle. Well, it is. Um, that's just the movie that I have the firmest grasp on, you know, it's just, I, I get it. I, he's a God. He comes from Asgard. I wouldn't have understood the story 10 years ago, but now I understand the character. He's a goofball. It's a fish out of water story. I can sink my teeth into that. I love hanging out with Chris Hemsworth. I love hanging out with Tessa Thompson. Apparently Natalie Portman is back. What a flex. Portman back in your Thor movies. Dude, I love the fact that Taika Waititi and Kevin Feige called up Natalie Portman and they were like, how much money is it going to take to get you back in these Thor movies? And she's like, I want to be Lady Thor. And they make her Lady Thor. (laughs) Look, nothing wrong with Lady Thor. I'm sure there's a lot of great comic book shit on her but Natalie Portman is Thor now we're really scraping the bottom of the barrel aren't we (laughs) let's go down the list let's do this so um the interesting thing about this presentation at comic-con was that there was an uh an equal amount of feature length motion pictures to be released in cinemas and television shows because Disney Plus is coming. And a lot of these things were rumored 
and now they're finally confirmed and they have some dates attached to them. So let's go down the list and we'll talk about the strategy behind these releases and we'll see if it's going to work or not. Um, Black Widow coming May 1st, 2020. Evidently, this is a prequel film. Spoiler alert, Black Widow died in Avengers Endgame, so there is no story to be told after the events of the Avengers. So this is not going to be an origin story, as some speculated, but it's going to take place right after Captain America Civil War and before the events of Avengers Infinity War. I'm not sure we were clamoring to see what Scarlet was doing in the interim, but now we have the blanks filled in for us. Um, who is directing this? Kate Shortland. I'm not familiar with her work. You're going to hear a lot of random ass names thrown out there of directors, and I'm sure many of them are quite good at what they do. For the most part, these are just indie film directors that made like one good movie that took off at cons or Sundance. And like now they're being trusted with $400 million worth of intellectual property. It's Marvel's MO. I'm not sure if it'll work, but that's, you know, the plan that they've had and they're sticking to it. They've had success with it in the past. Who knows if Kate Shortland can work well in a studio system? I mean, I don't know. It's a mixed bag. Kate Shortland has directed. Wow. Wow. Some movies that I have never heard of. A movie from 2012 called Lore. A movie from 2004 called Somersault. And a movie from 2017 called Berlin Syndrome. And now she's doing Black Widow. I really like the character of Black Widow. I really like Natasha. And I like Scarlet's performance in those movies. If anything, she has been underutilized in the previous Avengers films. And this has been a long time coming. And I'm happy that she's finally going to take the reins here. Um, Scarlet is just a movie star. She is arguably the most charismatic movie star of the entire Avengers cast with the exception of Robert Downey Jr. She just pops. She's awesome in these action roles and it's just a no brainer to tell the individual story. Um, Again, are we clamoring for this type of prequel? It's not even a prequel. Like, it's not even an origin story. It's just a weird side mission that was not worth discussing in Avengers Infinity War. Man, the stakes are just getting so low in these movies. And I do wonder if, like, the patience is going to wear out on the audience's side. I wonder if people would be interested in this. Obviously, they're going to see it. But after all that momentum at the end of Endgame, for where's this story going to go? Who's going to die? Is Thanos going to win at the end of the day? And then you carry that momentum into Spider-Man, which was like, what's the aftermath from the snap? Uh, Who's going to wear the Iron Man suit? Is Peter ready to take on that mantle? You have all this forward momentum, you know, And, and there was movement in the future direction. And now we're going to the past. And now we're telling a random side mission where we know our main character is not going to die. And most of these supporting characters are not going to die. I'm just a bit skeptical. I don't know. David Harbour is in this movie from Stranger Things. Gotta love that guy. Fresh off the Hellboy reboot that totally bombed. Florence Pugh from Midsommar and Rachel Weisz. Man, these actors are so good. 
Leave it to Marvel to assemble yet another cast of overqualified character actors. <laughs> they are so good at this. I love all of those people. As I said, we also have The Eternals coming November 6th, 2020 in the fall. I guess there's not going to be a summer movie next year, or at least not a midsummer movie coming next year from Marvel. This stars, as I said, an incredibly stacked cast of awesome actors. Angelina Jolie is in a Marvel movie. And you also have Brian Tyree Henry, Kumail Nanjiani, Richard Madden. It's directed by Chloe Zhao, who did a movie last year called The Rider. And it's about a rodeo rider. Uber independent movie, um, but was on a lot of top 10 lists at the end of the year. Critics absolutely adored it. I haven't watched it yet, um, but it sounds right up my alley. We'll see what she can do. Again, I know nothing about these people. I guess they're immortal, right? They're ancient beings. Here's the description. Uh, a group of ancient immortal beings watched over the earth um, clash with their longtime nemesis, the deviants. Okay. Again, so close to an Onion article. Sang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings, the first superhero movie from Marvel starring a hero of Asian descent. Shang-Chi is being played by uh, Simu Liu, who is a Canadian actor, I guess. He was on the show Kim's Convenience. And he'll be starring alongside Tony Lung, Lung and uh, Aquafina who is a delightful, delightful actress. I really like that Aquafina. And you cannot convince me otherwise. So this guy, Tony Lung, Lung, is playing the Mandarin, who was a hero that was portrayed, or a villain, I should say, who was portrayed in Iron Man 3 by Ben Kingsley. But as we know, that character was not the real Mandarin. This is the real Mandarin this time. I can't believe it's called Shang-Chi in The Legend of the Ten Rings. But... Cool. I'll see it. Fine. <laughs> Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. Good on the Doctor Strange franchise to borrow the Steven Seagal model of naming movies. Doctor Strange in the Multitude or the Multiverse of Madness. Steven Seagal is above the law. Steven Seagal is under siege. Steven Seagal is making breakfast. <laughs> Steven Seagal in the line for the post office. I love the title. That, the, the title is my favorite thing about Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. Other than that, I am so disinterested. That first Doctor Strange movie did not do anything for me. I actually think Benedict Cumberbatch is a weird choice for this character. At first, I thought he would be quite good because I love him in Sherlock. Um, and I just like Benedict Cumberbatch. He's a terrific actor. But he's underplaying this character in a very strange way. And I kind of want him to play it a little more over the top. You know, I think the great lie about that first Doctor Strange movie is that it's trippy and out there and psychedelic. It's like a David Lynch surrealist movie. When it's just another Marvel action movie with some cool visual shit. You know, I, I kind of want these movies to steer more into the weirdness. And it just sounds to me like they're going to attempt weirdness. But at the end of the day, it's a Disney movie and it costs $300 million and people need to see it. So um, 
I don't know. Apparently, this is going to be a horror movie. The quote from the Comic-Con panel was, it's the first scary MCU film. So, we'll see. I mean, I'm sure kids are still going to be able to see it. They got to sell action figures after all. So, I don't think this is going to be The Exorcist. But Scarlet Witch is in it. Elizabeth Olsen's character. So, uh, cool. Fine. I'll see that too. Are you sensing a theme? (laughs) Thor Love and Thunder, as I said, not a Fleetwood Mac album from 1995, but instead the fourth movie in the Thor franchise. Taika Waititi is returning to direct the film. So happy about that. Uh, Obviously, Thor Ragnarok, one of the better Marvel movies, and in no short part to the incredible direction by Taika Waititi. So that's cool. Tessa Thompson is going to play a larger role in this movie. Apparently, she's one of the first LGBTQ characters to be featured in the MCU. She is, I guess, the new king of Asgard. And so now she's got to find a partner, I guess. And Natalie Portman is that person. I don't know, man. I got to admit, I don't know what the logic is here. I cannot believe Natalie Portman is back. Anyway, and then, of course, the big announcement, which was not rumored at all. It did not leak. I'm shocked this news didn't leak. But at the end of the panel, Mahershala Ali comes out, and he's going to be the new Blade, which seems so obvious. It was one of those things where it's like, of course, of course, they got to do Blade again. And what's so interesting about this story, according to Kevin Feige, after Mahershala Ali won the Oscar for Green Book, he called Kevin Feige up, called uh, the people at Marvel, and said, I want to be Blade. Let's make it work. And Kevin Feige was like, sure, you have two Oscars. Let's do it. Yeah, makes total sense. Perfect casting. Um, Perfect decision making. I think it's a little weird because Mahershala Ali was in uh, Luke Cage on Netflix. Y'all remember that? It's so obvious to me. Man, the Marvel Cinematic Universe wants to totally forget those shows ever happened. I know there's a lot of drama behind the scenes that the Marvel television people don't like the Marvel film people, and I'm sure that was part of it, but Mahershala Ali has now played two different characters in the MCU, and not that I care about that shit, but it seems like Disney Plus is the way of the future, as evident by the Disney Plus announcements. All these television shows are being given dates. So The Falcon and the Winter Soldier, starring Anthony Mackie and Sebastian Stan, is coming fall of 2020. I find those two to be the most boring characters in the entire universe. So uh, can't say I'll be binge-watching that show. But Daniel Bruhl is coming back playing Baron Zemo, his character from Captain America Civil War. And no, I did not remember any of those names. And I'm sure I will forget them between now and the fall of 2020. Also, Wanda Vision. I thought Vision was dead. Guess not. He's coming back for a love story between Scarlet Witch and, uh, and an AI. Loki... I'm into this show. This is another prequel, though. Set after the events of the Avengers, the first one. Loki's playing a villain. Thought that guy died. Who knows? He might be still out there. 
What if? What if? Huh. Okay, this is an animated series. I'll admit I didn't do any prep on this uh, TV show. Marvel Comics has a long history of exploring alternate realities through its What If Comics line, and now the MCU is doing the same thing in a new Disney Plus series. The show will explore ideas like, what if Peggy Carter picked up Steve Shield to become Captain America? Well, never asked myself that question. And it'll include voices of returning Marvel stars like Michael B. Jordan, Josh Brolin, Mark Ruffalo, Sam Jackson, Haley Atwell, Chadwick Boseman, Karen Gillan, Paul Rudd, Michael Douglas, Neil McDonough, Dominic Cooper, Sean Gunn, and Natalie Portman. Jeffrey Wright is also leading his voice as the Watcher, an alien being who observes different storylines through the multiverse. So essentially, Marvel has gotten so big that it's writing its own fan fiction. If I understand this correctly. That's how big these movies have gotten that they're now writing their own adaptation of their own stories in cartoon form. Wow, Disney has too much money. Hawkeye, Jeremy Renner, Fall 2021 could be my most anticipated Marvel TV show. Actually, definitely is. What am I talking about? I just hope that he gets an opportunity to flex his new country music skills. That dude is out there, man, on these streets. Renner. <laughs> Who knew he was so musical? And uh, not part of the announcement at Comic-Con, however, hinted at by Kevin Feige at the end of the presentation, were some movies that we know are in development. Captain Marvel 2, Black Panther 2, Guardians of the Galaxy 3, a Fantastic Four movie, an X-Men movie, question mark, question mark. Again, um, it's fine. It's cool. I'll be there. I'm seeing these movies. Whether I like it or I don't, I am powerless to stop the, uh, the forces of the Disney Corporation, and they can just have all my money. I kind of felt the same way about the last Marvel announcement when they announced the Phase 3 slate at Comic-Con a few years ago. Like, cool. Those are movies that are about to be a thing. I, I don't have any reaction. I'm not one of those guys in San Diego cheering when Mahershala Ali comes out on stage. Like, this sounds really fun. Um, meanwhile, I'll be seeing Once Upon a Time in Hollywood five times this weekend. Those are the movies that interest me. These, like, you can just tell me the day before. Just tell me, like, Thursday night. Hey, Nico, there's this movie called The Eternals coming out with Angelina Jolie in it. And she lives forever and she shoots lasers out of her hands. All right, so uh, Friday, 7, I'm in. Let's go. Like, I don't need to be prepped of this three years in advance. We'll see how the television... Um, Th th that whole angle works out. That's going to be interesting. An interesting experiment. Because it seems like Disney wants the miniseries on Disney Plus to be as important as the films. And to sort of be the glue that holds these individual stories together. Uh, who knows if audiences have an appetite for it? I'm sure they do. But am I going to have to watch 10 episodes of Falcon and Winter Soldier 
in order to understand the new Blade movie? Because that seems like a bit of a drag. We'll see, though. Good for Marvel. Congratulations. You stole the media cycle yet again this week. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, we'll talk Emmy nominations. And boy, do I have some gripes with the Television Academy. Stick around. It is cultured. All right, so I know I'm one of the only people that cares about award shows. And I am certainly the only person that cares about award shows two to three months before they happen. So (laughs) you'll have to indulge me for a bit. But um, yeah, I'm upset at the Emmys. And I guess I'm just sad about the Emmys. And I'm coming to grips with the reality. And that is that the Emmys don't really have a place in the pop culture landscape anymore. Their time has sort of came and went. And uh, I don't know. I'm upset about that because I really love television and I love talking about television. And oftentimes award shows serve as as a nice outlet to discuss these things. You know, the Oscars are a farce. There's, there's no doubt that the Oscars are a farce, but they serve as an interesting backdrop to discuss movies, you know, and although they are an imperfect process, the process bears a lot of great fruit. The Emmys, um, I, I don't think serve a similar role. I, I just think the Emmys are out of touch. And that's just the reality of the situation because television now is bigger than it's ever been. There are more television shows produced yearly than any other time in human history. There are more people watching television across multiple mediums than any other time in human history. The form is evolving in really interesting ways, both financially and artistically. And theoretically, that should mean great things for the Emmys. But that's just not the case. And if you want to know why, I would look no further than the Grammy Awards which have also slipped in relevancy over the years. Like, people are still listening to music, and they care about music, and they care about famous people that sing music, and they are happy to spend three and a half hours on CBS in January to watch Taylor Swift and Katy Perry sing pop songs. So, like, people still watch the Grammys, but do you know who won Album of the Year last year? Because I don't remember. The awards aspect is... So besides the point, because music is so sprawling, record sales are so varied, genres are so specific, Um, you can't find consensus in the music industry. It's just too subjective. And television is moving in that direction. Television is no longer produced for four quadrants, as they say, male, female, young, old. It's not meant to appeal to all demographics, NBC, Thursday night. Television is now produced with niche audiences in mind. It is produced by streaming services that are looking to attract as many subscribers as possible. And they're also made with unlimited resources, unlimited time space, and not much care or consideration for ratings. So that's a big deal. That's a big deal. So back in like 2004, The Sopranos was watched by everyone. The West Wing was watched by everyone. 24 was watched by everyone. It was easy to come to a consensus. These are the best shows on television. These will be the people taking home the Emmys. 
award shows thrive on consensus. And that's one of the reasons why the Oscars still does moderately well. There are a limited number of movies that come out every year and compete for major awards. And I could theoretically watch all of them in preparation for the Oscars. I can have a sense of who's competing. I can have a sense of the best movies of the year. Unless you are an absolute obsessive, you cannot watch every good television show that comes out every year. It's just impossible. You can watch the most popular shows. You can watch Stranger Things. You can watch Killing Eve. You can watch This Is Us. You can watch Game of Thrones. But chances are you're missing a big piece of the pie. And here's the thing. So are the members of the Television Academy. They are just like you. They are just as overwhelmed by the endless sea of content. They are just as overwhelmed by the growing number of streaming services. They are just as overwhelmed by the incessant production of random-ass television shows that drop on Netflix every week. It is impossible to conquer TV. It is impossible to get the full picture. So as the amount of content grows, the consensus begins to fade away. And what you see, for the most part, at the Emmys, is a list of not the best TV shows of the year, but the most popular ones. And of course, we're not talking about NCIS. We're not talking about The Big Bang Theory. We're not talking about the shows that still draw audiences of 15 to 20 million people. But we're talking about the shows that critics love to talk about, that have very dedicated fan bases that are loud on social media and that have the, I guess, most expensive Emmy campaigns. That's what it seems like to me. So I'm going down this list and I'm seeing a lot of repeats. It just feels like the Emmy voters picked five shows that they wanted to honor and they stacked these categories with actors from these shows. So Obviously, the big example is Game of Thrones, which is the last consensus TV show that we have left and will more likely than not win Best Drama when the Emmys come around in September, despite an incredibly controversial final season. Like, season eight of Game of Thrones was by no means the best TV show from last year, but it's going to win because it is the last vestige of consensus peak TV. Audiences love it. Critics love it. It's popular, people talk about it, and Emmy voters actually watch it. Like, I feel like these voters, they must not even watch some of these shows. Here's the list of best drama nominees. So you have a few outside-the-box picks. You have Bodyguard, which was that Netflix show which did very well in the UK. Um, and it was pretty good. It was like a British version of 24. And, and I dug it. Um, you have Pose, which... I think it was just the first season. might have been the second season on FX and Succession, which was my favorite show of last year and deserved a spot on this list, no doubt. Again, in its first season, had never been nominated before. So that's cool. But then you have Better Call Saul, which is still like best show on TV for the most part, but is going to get nominated every year because critics love Breaking Bad. Game of Thrones, as I said, Killing Eve which was nominated last year, 
Ozark, which I also believe was nominated last year. People watch it, I guess. Jason Bateman. My dad loves that show. And This Is Us, the NBC feel-good show, which seems to be the last thing on network TV that people care about. And then you go down the list and you see stuff like in the Best Supporting Actor category, Best Supporting Actor in a, in a Drama. Here are your nominees, just as an example. Jonathan Banks, Better Call Saul. Giancarlo Esposito, Better Call Saul. Michael Kelly, House of Cards. Chris Sullivan, This Is Us. Fine. Then you have Nikolai Koster-Waldau, Game of Thrones. Peter Dinklage, Game of Thrones. Alfie Allen, Game of Thrones. Theon was in like 20 minutes of this season. We're giving Alfie Allen a nomination. And then in the Best Supporting Actress in a Drama category, Julia Gardner, Ozark. Fiona Shaw, Killing Eve. And then... Gwendolyn Christie, Game of Thrones. Lena Headey, Game of Thrones. Sophie Turner, Game of Thrones. Macy Williams, Game of Thrones. Are you seeing my point? The Emmys picked like five shows and they just filled those categories with those five shows. And it's really frustrating because they ignored a lot of people that did great work on TV this year. Like, I love to see Jonathan Banks and Bob Odenkirk and Giancarlo Esposito get nominated for Better Call Saul. All of these men have been nominated in the past, and they are all worthy of nomination. But Ray Seahorn not getting a nomination in the Best Supporting Actress category because we got to give Brienne of Tarth an Emmy nomination? Dude, what the hell? Best Performance on Better Call Saul was not nominated. Are you even watching the show? And I love the fact that Succession picked up a nomination but not a single acting award? Not a single nomination for Brian Cox, Jeremy Strong, Sarah Snook. Come on, bro. The acting was arguably the best part of that show. Kieran Culkin can't get a nomination? So frustrating. And then you have a similar thing in the comedy category. Barry, uh, The Good Place, Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, Veep, all nominated before. And then you have a few outside-the-box nominees. Schitt's Creek, that show on pop that has gained a cult following, got a lot of love. Fleabag on Amazon, I'm actually glad to see that got some love. That's a show I don't think was nominated in the past, but people were blown away by season two, and that deserves a spot here. And then Russian Doll, Natasha Leone, popular show, from Netflix earlier on in the year. So all good, all well and good. And then you go into the acting categories, Rachel Brosnahan, Julia Louis-Dreyfus, Don Cheadle, Anthony Anderson, Michael Douglas, Bill Hader. We've been here before. It's cool to see Eugene Levy nominated. It's cool to see Catherine O'Hara. It's cool to see Christina Applegate, I guess. But... Man, are you guys watching these shows? Are you guys even paying attention? I don't want to go through everything. Should I do do I need to? I guess what what was I most pleased by? I'll try to keep this brief. Um obviously all the love for Fleabag was 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 welcomed. I I don't need to see Robin Wright nominated again. I just don't need to see Mandy Moore nominated again. Viola Davis. 
some of these acting categories, it just feels like these people are grandfathered in. It's it's more about legacy. It truly is. Kit Harrington gets a nomination in the lead actor category. Amelia Clark gets a nomination in the lead actress category. Could you make it more obvious that Game of Thrones is going to win this year? Could you make it more obvious? This is going to be a Game of Thrones sweep in these categories for a season that was fairly controversial and not deserving of many of these nominations. It's just it's just frustrating. Like back in the day, I remember one of my favorite Emmys, 2006, 24 wins Best Drama. It had been nominated in the past, but season five of 24, which aired in 2006, was essentially its breakout season. It was the peak of 24, the best season across the board. Everyone agrees. Season five of 24 wins Best Drama and then never wins again. And I was totally cool with it because critics actually watched the shows. Here were the nominees that year. 24, Grey's Anatomy, House, The Sopranos, The West Wing. The vast majority of the Television Academy had seen all of those shows. And they made the determination, hey, 24 had a good season this year. Let's give it best drama. How refreshing. 2012, Homeland wins for its first season. Beats Breaking Bad, Game of Thrones, Downton Abbey, Mad Men. Mad Men, I think, had won four years in a row. And then the show Homeland comes around. Has a great first season. Let's give it the Emmy. It was actually on merit. It wasn't on legacy. And obviously, there's an element of that. It's a popularity contest. Award shows are an imperfect process. But with the exception of like The Handmaid's Tale from a few years ago or Breaking Bad in 2013, there are not a ton of surprises anymore. And it's just, uh, I don't know, it's frustrating, especially in the case of Game of Thrones which we all acknowledged had a very imperfect eighth season. Uh, All right. That is the Emmys. I will spare you the rest. Uh, We're going to take another break. When we come back, man, do I have some thoughts on some trailers? Yeah, you know the one. We'll talk about it after this break. Stick around. It's cultured. All right, fine. You've been asking for it. Let's do it. We got to talk cats. (laughs) Dude, what is this shit? What is this movie? This is not a real thing. Oh, my God. Cats. The Andrew Lloyd Webber Broadway show is coming to theaters near you this December, and it's directed by Tom Hooper, coming out evidently the same day as Star Wars. I question that decision. <laughs> um, Whoa, this trailer broke the internet. I hate that phrase, but it's true. It broke the internet. Um, Man, where do I want to begin? Okay, first of all, all you motherfuckers who saw The Lion King this weekend or pretended to see The Lion King this weekend and gave their takes on Twitter, who were like, oh, the animals in Lion King are so non-expressive. This is what you asked for, and now this is what you deserve. 
Jennifer Hudson and Taylor Swift CGI'd animated cats. <laughs> like a bad face swap app. James Corden superimposed on an animated cat. You wanted it, now you get it. Are these animals expressive enough for you? Is Idris Elba with a tail sitting on a clock tower eerily overlooking the town of Catsville? Is that expressive enough for you? Are these the type of animals you go to the cinema to watch? (laughs) Be careful what you wish for. Bro, cats. Whoa. Okay, I'll admit I never saw the musical Cats. Never seen it. Don't know what it's about. I mean, I have a few guesses. Um, And one of them is, I think it's about cats. Am I hot or cold? Um, so like, is this like a cat village that they live in? Is this a universe where only cats exist? Because there were no humans in the trailer. And in fact, there were like some references to cat themed restaurants. Dude, what is the name of this city that the cats live in? Was it developed by cats? There was a milk bar I saw in the trailer distinctly, as clear as day. These cats are hanging out at a milk bar. And I know milk bars are not a real thing. They only exist in cat in, in, in fantasy cat towns. So, like, <laughs> leads me to believe this is a city of cats. Or maybe the cats just go out at night. I don't know. I have no logical explanation for why there wouldn't be any humans featured in this trailer. Pretty sure it's all cats. So... If this is indeed a cat universe founded and built by cats, why are like the tables too small? Why are the doors too small? Why is everything human size? Why are the cats jumping on the bed? Why do they look like Smurfs? I don't understand it. Man, this was such a terrible idea. I cannot believe they're actually doing this. I can't believe they thought, all right, We want to make cats into a movie. We can either make them real people and not CGI them too much and have them running about like the actors on a Broadway stage, human-sized, human-looking, or we can CGI animate some cats and it can be like The Secret Life of Pets or The Lion King and it can look uber-realistic. And we can have Taylor Swift and Jennifer Hudson voice these cats. And someone in a boardroom somewhere said, nah, B, let's do it both. <laughs> let's find that sweet spot somewhere in between. That perfect zone of the uncanny valley where these characters both look Exactly like humans and also like creatures from your nightmares. They are neither cat looking nor human looking. It's so weird. What a terrible choice this was. They don't look like cats. They don't look like people. They are just nightmare fuel. Man, it looks like the worst deep fake I've ever seen. 
This should not exist. This is like one of those creepy viral videos that like your friends share with you in the eighth grade. It's like Shrek is love, Shrek is life. This is not okay, man. Who thought this was a good idea? Just make them look like cats or make them look like people, but don't do both. Don't invent some hybrid creature that by the looks of it is like four inches tall. Just tiny enough to sneak under your door in the middle of the night and murder you in your sleep. Ugh, the cats. <laughs> Serious question. Am I supposed to be turned on by the Taylor Swift cat? Because I'll admit, it it uh, it kind of ruffled my feathers. That cat's kind of hot, not going to lie. I mean, the thing is, they're totally naked. I think I saw somewhere they, they put it perfectly. I forget which article it was. I read like 20 Cats articles this week, by the way. I have yet to figure out the plot of Cats, but man, have I read a lot of breakdowns over that Cats trailer. And I think I've watched it a good 20 times. Someone on the internet was like, the, the cat looks more naked than naked people. You know, because it has no genitalia, but it has that tail hanging from it. And for some reason, these cats have boobs. Like, the cats don't have penises, but the cats have boobs. Again, so strange. It's not quite like people in cat costumes. They look like these weird, naked, genital-lacking creatures. But I'll admit, the Taylor Swift one was pretty hot. Sorry, man, that main cat was pretty sexy. (laughs) Oh, man, Jennifer Hudson wailing, wailing away in this trailer with her face superimposed on a CGI cat is such a mood. How about Taylor Swift laying in the hammock with the bedazzled catnip jar? Bro. This is not actually a movie. You know, (laughs) Tom Hooper has made some shit in the past. I I have never been a Tom Hooper fan. All you Tom Hooper defenders, chickens are coming home to roost, man. This is what you get. You egg this guy on. You supported his Les Miserables reboot. You supported the King speech. You gave it best picture. You even watched the Danish girl. And now you let this guy do cats. Only he would be capable of such a terrible decision. I have never seen the internet so instantaneously turn on a movie. This was just universally despised. I wonder what the YouTube trailer looks like in terms of the the likes and dislikes. Let me check out that ratio real quick. Because I don't think anybody liked this shit. Uh... Cats, official trailer, Universal Pictures. Oh, my God. 85,000 likes, 210,000 dislikes. This Christmas, you will believe. Yes, in Satan. Satan is around us, people. And he is no longer taking the form of a serpent. He's taken the form of a CGI cat. 
<laughs> Jason Derulo is in this movie? What? <laughs> Rebel Wilson as a fat cat? Wow. Cats, baby. Dude, Judy Dench is in this movie. Dame Judy Dench, which another article pointed out this week, is wearing a fur coat despite having fur. Incredible. I just don't understand why the cats are not people size or why this world, because it seems like a cat world, why this world is not built to fit their proportions. I should probably see the stage play first before I cast judgment. Wow. Gave me nightmares and we'll continue to. That being said, y'all see that Maverick trailer? Top Gun colon Maverick? The much anticipated sequel to Top Gun? I'll admit I was not a huge fan of the original Top Gun movie. I am a little too young, I guess, to enjoy um, that era of Tom Cruise or to be blown away by the nostalgia of that movie. You know, Top Gun is such a a formative 80s action flick and was a kind of star-making vehicle for Tom Cruise. He had been in other things, but that's what sort of cemented his place as the Hollywood heartthrob and action star. Uh, and, like, I understand its charms. I get why people enjoy it. It's, uh, you know, it's silly action sequences and it's musical numbers at the bar and it's weird sort of homoerotic undertones. It's it's a charming movie and is certainly a product of the 80s. And I was not excited when I heard that they were making a sequel um, until I heard about this cast and saw this trailer. Because this trailer just looks like they're doing Mission Impossible, but with Top Gun. Maverick is uh, is going to be doing his own stunts. Christopher McQuarrie is directing it. Of course, the director of the last two Mission Impossible movies, among the best Mission Impossible movies ever made. They are leaning heavily on the aircraft in this trailer. They're leaning heavily on the action sequences and heavily on Tom Cruise. Um, and I think that's exactly the direction you want to go. It looks like they've updated it for modern audiences. And uh, that certainly intrigues me. Listen to this cast. Miles Teller, Meg Ryan, Jennifer Connelly, John Hamm, Ed Harris, Michael Ironside, joining Val Kilmer and Tom Cruise. Yeah, I'm in. I'm in on Maverick. I was really into that trailer. You know? Um, Tom Cruise is just, uh, is just an action figure at this point, isn't he? He's just a stuntman. But cool. I'm I'm down. I'm down with Maverick. Big winner from Comic-Con. Big, big, big winner from Comic-Con. Along with the Halloween franchise, which somehow announced that they're doing two more movies with Jamie Lee Curtis coming out in 2021 and 2022. Uh, or maybe no, is it 2020 and 2021? Halloween kills and Halloween ends. Really, this is the ending, huh? Man, nothing can die anymore. This Halloween movie, which was very good, which I enjoyed. I thought it was a fitting end to the series. I'm not a huge fan of that franchise. 
Um, but I thought as far as those things go, it's the best possible version we could have got of the Halloween story. Um, I thought the whole point of that was to put a bow, to put a neat bow on top of this franchise and call it a day. But Jamie Lee Curtis is back yet again. Hollywood just cannot let a good thing die. Two more movies. That was announced at Comic-Con. Um, I guess Walking Dead did some shit. I, I wrote some things down. I'm just not as interested in Comic-Con as I once was. I'm sorry, nerds. Sue me. Um, oh, my God. Wow. I didn't realize I had so much more stuff to do. Whoa. Okay. Let's, uh, all right. Real, real quick. Okay. So Noah Baumbach and, uh, and Greta Gerwig are working on a Barbie movie. What is this news? I love Noah Baumbach and I love Greta Gerwig and you probably don't know who those two people are. Well, maybe you're a listener of this podcast, so you know at least who Greta Gerwig is. She is the director of Lady Bird from a few years ago, a very popular movie. And so, yeah, okay, you know Lady Bird, but you definitely don't know Noah Baumbach, director of The Squid and the Whale, Greenberg, Francis Ha, Kicking and Screaming, Mistress America. Like, these movies are made, I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, I checked the... uh, the the Netflix press release on this when the Meyerwitz stories came around in 2017. Yeah, let me check that again. Yes. Um, all Noah Baumbach movies produced exclusively for Nico DiGregorio. Yeah, they're just made for me. No one else is actually watching these things and enjoying them, right? They're just for me. All these actors are getting together with my boy Noah Baumbach to make movies for me to enjoy and for no one else to ever hear of. Well, now him and his wife, Greta Gerwig, are working on a Barbie movie starring Margot Robbie in the leading role. Could be the most bizarre piece of franchise news I've ever heard. Could be. I mean, we're close. I guess James Gunn doing Guardians of the Galaxy. Eh. Robert De Niro starring in the Joker movie. We're getting closer. I think this is by far the weirdest. Noah Baumbach, Greta Gerwig working on a Barbie movie for Mattel, a toy company. uh, Sure, all right. I mean, look, I think there's a reason why these two people have not worked in the studio system before. I mean, I think there's a reason why you haven't heard of any of these movies, although they are quite good. I mean, Greta Gerwig, I guess, was in Arthur with Russell Brand. I mean, she's done some stuff. Wasn't she supposed to be in that How I Met Your Mother spinoff? So I guess she's not a stranger to the Hollywood system. And now she's working on Little Women, the adaptation with um, a bunch of famous movie stars. So I guess she has worked with money in the past. It is not totally foreign to her. And Noah Baumbach has been around the block and he knows how to deal with movie stars. Ben Stiller has worked with him a ton and uh, Dustin Hoffman worked with him just recently. So look, they, they know how to make movies and I have no doubt that the Barbie script will be something to marvel at and they will certainly put their artistic stamp on whatever they do. But 
Ugh. It's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. It's a lot of investors. It's a lot of people to answer to. And there are massive expectations when you put your name on a, I guess, very popular property. Like Barbie is an iconic toy. It's an iconic brand. And we're not just dealing with, you know, $10 million independent movies anymore. We're dealing with big companies with big brands to protect and shareholders to answer to. So, uh, you know, if Chris Miller and Phil Lord couldn't work on the Solo movie, the Han Solo movie, with any success, how was Noah Noah Baumbach, how was he going to factor into this? Still very exciting news. I'm just confused by it. Uh, Eddie Murphy reportedly being paid $70 million for a new stand-up special on Netflix, making his triumphant return to stand-up. At least that's the rumor. You know, I was talking to my brother about this because he's a pretty big stand-up fan. It's hard to be away for that long and come back on your A-game. Eddie Murphy, of course, is a singular talent. There is no one that has ever been that dynamic, that varied in skill set, just so good at sketch and stand-up at the same time. No one has ever been that good, and no one will ever be that good ever again. Um, so I, you know, I'm excited to see what Eddie Murphy's got. Of course, I want to see another special, but, um, I don't think he's like been touring. Has he? I mean, he must show up at like the comedy store every once in a while. I'm sure like he's remained funny, but, uh, it's a grind, man. Stand up's a grind. It takes a while. It's, it's, it takes a lot of man hours. A lot of polishing of material, a lot of building your voice and staying relevant. It, it You'd lose it. If you stop doing it, it's, it's hard to learn how to ride that bike again. It's hurt. It's hard to get back on the horse. So, uh, you know, I'm not super optimistic for what, what is to come. $70 million is a ton of money. I will say that. And I'm sure it's worth every penny because everyone wants to see more Eddie Murphy. Um... But yeah, stand-up is, it is perhaps the hardest art form to remain good at. Like, you can act until you're 85. You can act well into life, and you don't really lose your fastball. Robert De Niro, Al Pacino, Dustin Hoffman can still do their thing. If you're a singer, like, you can't really write music anymore, but you can certainly perform music late into life. You don't lose that skill set, even if you take a break. Stand-up, it's like, it's it's a non-stop job you're thinking of new material you're polishing off new material trying stuff out failing bombing trying again learning how to work a room we'll see uh and also rest in peace rip torn that's the last thing i wanted to say rip rip torn star of freddie got fingered one of the great movies of the 21st century (laughs) And now it's getting late, and now I need to stop doing this podcast. So thank you. Thank you very much for being here, talking pop culture with me. You know I love doing it, and I hope you enjoy listening as much as I love talking. Uh, Look, I'm doing a week's worth of Two Cents Radio episodes, as I just said. Every day, Rob and I getting together, shooting the shit. Find that on the website, along with new episodes of Why Is This a Thing, the movie Hall of Fame, Cultured, Get Blurted, Fantasy Book of the Month. It's all there. Too many thoughts media.com. 
or tmt.media for short. I love you so very much, and I do hope that you return next week because you know what happens then. Yeah, that's when you and I sit down together and we get cultured. See ya.